Professor Fraser, his ladies, and their nineteen trunks, packed with one year's art supplies for the daughters, arrived unheralded in the mythic Chicago of the 1870s. The town had a cowboy novel's mules and dust. After rain, it became a Venice made of mud, painted women revealing entire inches of dead white ankle loitered under gas street lamps in even the best neighborhoods. Civil War veterans, their blue uniforms emptied of legs and arms, begged aggressive on street corners. No building looked more than six months old. To the stately professor's four virgin daughters, workmen muttered personal, ghastly things. Stockyards brought the scent of reality into the most elevated thought. Everything seemed omen. One afternoon, to cheer five women folk, Donald Fraser squired them toward high tea at what one heard was the best hotel. It featured Chicago's first revolving door, but a crowd stood pressing noses to the portal's fanning glass. One clever brown hen had escaped a passing farm cart. She then dashed toward safety, but chose a door like an upright threshing machine made of mirror. Professor Fraser could see the chicken in there still alive and flapping against tile floor, her head twisted beneath a rotating black rubber flange. Her red waddle seeped out from underneath, like black rubber's own red rubber blood. Don't look, Muriel, the Scotsman told his eldest girl and confidant, who looked. Nobody could push the door without killing the bird. Her free wing beat so trying to lift a ten-story building nesting on her spine. The crowd of city swells in fur, velvet, and cashmere seemed unconcerned about one chicken's life. But everyone act embarrassed that a single country fowl could block entry to so fine an establishment and a tea time. Muriel, having peeked, her face a stark white vertical beneath its tweed bonnet, now tried to hold cupped hands over three younger sisters' eyes. It's a hurt one, she explained. If you see it, you'll remember, so don't. Please. The youngsters peeked. Crying resulted. Muriel already understood. This sight had entered her forever. A hen was lodged there in that door. And the sight was in her now. The family soon discovered. Homesickness meant just that, sickness, a stubborn flu of longing. Sometimes the sight of a letter's pink Scottish stamp could send any of them into nausea itself. The girls did sketches of Sunnyside's apple orchard. Muriel, the astute eldest, Papa's favorite, portrayed Sunnyside's foyer. She showed its William Morris laurel wallpaper backing forty frames of Piranesi's classical ruins. She even added the yellow ceramic umbrella stand crammed with hawthorn walking sticks and house guests' orphaned umbrellas. Her drawing made the container seem so avuncular a jumble that, according to Papa, it looked the very portrait of Mr. Holmes' squat companionable sidekick, Dr. Watson. I see that, Muriel nodded, smiling. The visiting professor taught classes in an accent his students joked about. 
they asked for repetitions. Two months before the Frasers planned to return to Glasgow, the whole family began packing. Over-preparing, Fraser brogues thickened to butterscotch density. The day before departure arrived, the professor's wife, pretty, plump, hurried to Marshall Fields buying gifts for Scottish relatives, tablecloths and matching napkins. Laden with goods, happy, rushing, she was one block from the store when a streetcar jumped its tracks. It came at her. It was striking her. It had pinned her underneath it. Already her pelvis had been crushed like some sevre teacup trod upon by boots. Kind treatment she received on the street was later attributed to eleven scattered bundles in Fields' gift wrapping. Those, if not her dreadful screams, had marked her as a lady. Four doctors, overpaid, the best by all accounts, told Donald Fraser, Scotland? Any travel would be fatal. She would die on the train to New York. The accident rendered the daughter of Lord Kilcairn an invalid for life. She could not walk, would have to be carried, forever moaning from bed to bed. And so the professor's employment ended. The teacher he traded places with came home, wearing a touristic tartan vest, and amicably evicted the clan. Fraser's own university was an ocean away, unable to continue his salary or tenure. Donald Fraser was forced to move his brood to ever more modest lodgings. Educated by live-in tutors at Sunnyside, the man was skilled in Greek and Latin. To quote all the poetry he had by heart would take him three days. He could draw serviceably, could sing in a decent tenor the popular Italian arias. His bagpipe collection was considered somewhat comprehensive. He'd known Rossetti had entertained Ruskin. He had shared a childhood mathematics coach with that other gifted, charming nomad susceptible to boys' literature, Robert Louis Stevenson. But not one of Fraser's skills, slash, languages, slash, friendships, warranted five dollars of ready Chicago cash. Stranded here, Professor Fraser sought a permanent job at the university. But he'd been a guest, a novelty. So he ran a newspaper ad, the cheapest four-word minimum. Can tutor most subjects. With the house exchange over, shelter for a family of six must be paid for out of pocket by a man who'd never known the heartache of rent. The Fraser's leased house now stood between a busy firehouse and a busier liquor store. Servants at Sunnyside wrote for the salaries the professor began contributing articles to a local sporting paper. As his waggish, tragic pen name, he chose Raffles. The racing news complained he too often mentioned Lotus's Greek gods. Donald Fraser considered taking in a lodger. He tried the public schools. But his Scottish credentials were not respected here. Soon the word professor, written before his name, seemed as dubious as the doctor he saw scribbled on calling cards tacked to doors in the dark halls of the latest boarding house. 
He was forced to telegraph a land agent in Glasgow. He sold Sunnyside via mail, his furniture, his library, everything at a loss. His wife's bills were terrible, and he, so eager to get the poor woman home, mistaking this for the cure itself, consulted doctors who made promises they could not keep. Instead, they gave her drugs she came to need too much, even as the prices rose. Four daughters performed their usual Friday musicales on a rented chickering upright, not the home place's signed Beckstein. In a small if over-decorated parlor, maroon hangings flanked the mantel. Penance showed a peacock to the right, a peahen to the left. Both worked in metal threads, placed there, in part to hide the plaster's cracks. The sisters Fraser attended crowded slumside public schools. A head lice epidemic made even their curls suspect. Their mama had been the forceful utilitarian humoring Papa's whims, standing guard over his writing hours. Whenever he acted, swaggering or impractical, she had smiled at their daughter's saying as he listened, Spare we Donald his illusions, girls. There are only real capital. But now without her help, how loud and unrehearsed poor Papa sounded. The girls soon lied to protect him. School was fun. This flat was cozy. America was friendly. Mrs. Fraser needed attending round the clock. Her bedside table seemed an opium den's as she reverted to baby talk, lived banked in pillows.